Well, we continue our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith, moving on to the uh, doctrine of the sacraments. We're in that section of the Westminster Confession of Faith that deals with the church and the nature of the church and uh, the, the communion of the saints, and now we're on to the sacraments. The sacraments are a big part of what we do in the church. Uh, we take the Lord's Supper uh, once a month in the morning or in the evening. We're baptizing lots of babies, uh, if you haven't noticed. And so we ought to give some consideration to what the sacraments are uh, and some of the things that we need to know about them. So we're in chapter 27 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Just a, a brief overview, uh, an outline, so to speak, of what the Confession of Faith teaches uh, on the uh, subject of the sacraments in general. We'll move on in weeks to come to baptism and the Lord's Supper, but for the, the first part, it wants us to consider uh, the sacraments in and of themselves. And so the questions we're going to be asking are, what are our sacraments? It's a good place to start. What is it? Uh, why do we need the sacraments? For all the debates in uh, sacramental theology, it's worth paying attention to why God gave them to us in the first place. Uh, What's in a sacrament? Uh, What are its parts? What is the relationship of one part to the other? Uh, How do these things relate? Uh, How do sacraments not work? Uh, We're going to see as we study the sacraments, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's not written as a polemical document. It's not an argument against Rome, but as they're seeking to formulate uh, from the Bible, summarizing what the Bible teaches about doctrine, uh, they're doing so in a historical circumstance. And in the Reformed tradition, uh, the sacraments are important uh, because our views of the sacrament differ greatly uh, from Rome. Uh, we often think of the Reformation Uh, as being about Martin Luther and uh, indulgences and justification by faith alone. But what we often fail to realize is that the the Reformation, uh, just as much, if not more, was a Reformation in worship, and especially as it relates uh, to views on the sacraments. So uh, Rome has all sorts of erroneous views about how sacraments work, and the Confession of Faith is going to uh, make a positive statement in contradiction uh, to those false views. Uh, Then positively, if the sacraments don't work in this way, how then do they work? And then an obvious question perhaps for us, since we exist within our own tradition and we worship uh, in a way that we're familiar with, how many sacraments are there? We, we, We know that there's two. That's a preview. We know there's two. I'm sure that's a uh, a, a revelation to you. Uh, but why do we recognize only two sacraments instead of many more? Finally, we have the questions of who may administer the sacraments. Uh, you know, Rome had their view, the Reformation had theirs, and nowadays it's the wild, wild west. seems anybody can administer the sacraments. Uh, who may administer them properly? Uh, finally, uh, fifthly, how do the Old Testament and New Testament sacraments relate? Well, let's launch into the first section, uh, sort of a, a preview question that we need to consider when we, when we are looking at the sacraments is the, the word sacrament itself, if you haven't noticed, is not in the Bible. Uh, it doesn't come from a Hebrew or a Greek word. We, we get the word sacrament from the Latin term sacramentum, and it has, first of all, a, a, a secular usage. Before it's ever used by the church, 
It's used by the world, and the church sort of adopts the word. And so we want to consider briefly uh, its original usage. You'll see two pictures on the, the screen, I think. Pictures are helpful in the process of learning. Uh, I've used them in a few places. The first picture, if you don't know, is a group of people giving the right-hand uh, oath of enlistment. And one of the significant usages of the word sacrament uh, in the secular uh, usage was that of a soldier swearing loyalty, fealty, uh, to a general, saying, I will serve you, I will obey your orders, I will not run off and defect when, uh, when things get rough. And so this is the first idea, the sacrament is a, a, a oath of loyalty uh, from a soldier uh, to a commander. Interestingly, the other usage uh, refers to uh, something of a deposit, uh, the money you would put down uh, to secure maybe a contract. Uh, it's also used in the context of courts of law. Uh, if you basically need to post bail, something like that uh, is the idea. You're, you're putting this money down, and if you're convicted or you run off, you, you lose that money. So those are the original usages of the word sacrament. The, the word sacrament then comes into the church uh, through the Latin translation of the Bible. It's not a Greek term. It's not a Hebrew term. It's a Latin term. Uh, and it's used to translate the word uh, mysterion, or mystery, from which we get our word uh, mystery is mysterion. And it doesn't mean something secret. We think of mysteries as being things that are secret. But in the Bible, uh, mysteries are actually things that are revealed. Uh, for example, we have in Ephesians 3.3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, the mystery of Christ. And so the mystery is a mystery, but it's a revealed mystery. Revelation 1 verse 20 similarly says, As for the mystery of the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, and then it goes on and explains, what, what are the seven stars? What are the seven golden lampstands? They are the angels and the churches. And so in the Bible, uh, mystery has the, the idea of a revealed secret, something that wasn't known and is made known. It's explained. Uh, Augustine, he, he says, and this is important language as we look at our own definition of sacraments, uh, he kind of is the first major person to try to put a definition on it. He says a, a sacrament is the sign uh, of a sacred reality. Two key words there you want to pay attention to as we're going through our lesson. Uh, sign and reality. What is the relationship between these two things? So that's the, the secular usage of the word sacrament as it comes into the church uh, through the translation of the Bible into Latin. And we come to our first paragraph of the Confession of Faith. Uh, it asks the question, it doesn't actually ask questions, but this is the question it's answering. What are sacraments? Uh, you, you want to think about any subject. You start by asking, what is it? And they say that a sacraments, uh, sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God. And it's going to go on after that, but let's stop here and think about the parts. Really, all we're doing tonight is a careful reading and a paying attention uh, of the various clauses uh, that are given here and some of the scripture that goes behind them. I think this will be the most edifying way to go about it. So the first thing it says, scripture, uh, sacraments are, are holy signs and seals. So think again of Augustine's definition, signs and realities. Right now we're talking about signs. What are signs? We experience signs 
all the time in our daily life. I, I am using signs in a sense right now. As I say words, they conjure ideas in your mind. I say round red ball, and you picture that immediately. I, I, I smell smoke, and I, I know there's fire. There's not. There's no fire right now. But if I were to smell smoke, I would know that's a sign that there's fire somewhere. Uh, probably the most common sign we're used to seeing in our own daily life is that of a street sign, a road sign, a business sign, maybe a sign for the zoo. And we know that that sign that says zoo that has a word sign on it that signifies to us this idea of a place where they keep animals for entertainment and that the road sign itself then is pointing us to that place. And I, I like to use the examples. We think about signs Signs, what do they do? They point us to something. And it's very important then that we follow where they point. As I mentioned in a Sunday school this, this last Sunday, talking about Nicodemus, uh, signs, if we, we stop at just the sign, well, we're going to be disappointed. If I'm driving along the road down to Columbia, we're going to go to the zoo next week, uh, hopefully. Uh, we're going to go to the zoo in Columbia. If I drive along the road and I see the first sign for Columbia Zoo and I stop there, and we all get out of the car, are my kids going to be happy or are they going to be very confused? They're going to be very confused because we're sitting on the side of a highway. We're not at the reality that the sign is intended to point us to. And so that's what signs are. They, re- they, they represent to our senses uh, something else, uh, whether by hearing the letters that spell a word, uh, by smelling smoke that reminds us of fire, or seeing a zoo sign that points to a different location. Signs represent to our senses something uh, that is somewhere else. Secondly, uh, examples of seals as they're used today. Uh, We're talking about seals now. So that's signs. Seals uh, is the second thing that it says a sacrament is. They're they're, they're holy signs and they're seals. And we don't use seals as much today. We're we're pretty familiar, I think, with the idea of signs. They point us to something else. But, But what are Seals, And the typical example you get here is something like a signet ring, right? A, a wealthy landowner or a businessman in ancient times, in order to impress his, uh, his authority onto something, uh, an official document, a bill of sale, uh, something, a, a letter of correspondence, in order that people would know that that actually came from him, he would impress a, a, a signet ring seal or maybe a wax seal or some other sort of stamp onto it. Uh, to authenticate that this is, in fact, uh, from him. But we do, we, we do have seals that we use today in other examples. We, we have the presidential seal. When the, the president of the United States enters onto a stage and stands in front of a, a lectern, what do you see in front of him? It is the, the seal of the presidential office. And that seal is representative, then, of the authority of that office. It'll go on bills he signs. It will be on the side of his Air Force One jet so that people know that's the president's jet, not some other jet. And so they tell us about uh, the person uh, who that seal signifies. Other seal examples, cattle brands. I guess I'm from out west. We see cattle all the time. I don't, I don't see very many cows out here anymore. Uh, but cattle brands, right? Well, why do you brand a cattle? It's to signify ownership and belonging so that people cannot deny, they, 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 they cannot claim uh, that this cow belongs to them. But more importantly, it's the, the owner of that cow saying, this cow belongs to me. Signs function in that way. 
maybe in the south. We don't have cattle, uh, but one thing I discovered when I moved here is that y'all love monogrammed things. I, I don't understand it. Uh, but you, why do you monogram things? It's because uh, I was tempted to get a monogram on my shirt because I saw that was an option. You get you know, BJB on your sleeve, and then maybe the dry cleaner won't lose it as often, right? Uh, monograms, you put them on things to, to say, this is mine. It's my fancy purse. It's my luscious towels. It it, it belongs to me. So seals have that function. Uh, Seals also have the the function of of ratifying uh, promises and agreements and these sorts of things. That's not a done deal until it's signed and sealed. Uh, So I think, for instance, when I was getting married to my wife, uh, we, we had to get married civilly before we got married ceremonially because there were complications in terms of having her come over to Korea with me. And so we had to go and figure out marriage certificates in Korean. And I signed and she signed and we had to find some random stranger uh, who was there, uh, and I had to poorly translate into Korean what we were trying to do, and then they had to sign saying they, they saw us doing this. And then what did the government official have to do? They had to impress the, uh, the apostille, uh, the, the, the deep red stamp ceiling that this is, I have witnessed, this is a, this is a done deal. Uh, they are married. Well, signs, uh, signs point us to things. Seals, uh, they uh, authenticate, confirm promises uh, and agreements, these sorts of things. And the Bible especially seals, confirm promises uh, and duties. We think of uh, perhaps the, the, the words of concerning the sacrament itself, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then it goes on to say, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And so there are, there are promises involved in a seal, uh, God's promises to us, but the, the corollary to that is that signs and seals to the sacraments themselves, they're not just God's promises to us, they also are engaging to be His. We'll see language like that in a minute, uh, but we are, it's God promising to us, and it's also us engaging in our own duties, just like an oath of enlistment, right? You are agreeing to do things, and that is an aspect of the sealing aspect of sacraments. So key verses... For the third part, so first, sacraments are signs and seals. Secondly, uh, they're signs and seals, not just generally. There are lots of signs in the Bible. What makes a sign a sacrament? Well, what makes a sign not just a sign but a sacrament is its relationship to the covenant of grace, signs and seals of the covenant of grace, the confession says. And the key verse for this is Genesis 17, 7 and 11. It says, Uh, And this is God speaking. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And so what, what this verse is included in this verse is this idea that signs and seals, sacraments, are, are, are signs and seals of something in particular, not just generally. Uh, you know, as smoke is a, is a sign of fire, and as uh, the, the sounds that come out of my mouth are signs of words that are then in, in turn signs of ideas, a uh, big red bull, uh, those are signs, but they're not sacraments. And one of the reasons they're not sacraments 
is because I'm not tied to a covenant of grace. And so we have examples of signs and seals that are associated with the covenant of grace, one of them being circumcision, another of them being Passover. Uh, They're sacraments belonging to a covenant of grace uh, as it was administered under Abraham. And then in the New Testament, we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're sacraments belonging to the covenant of grace as it is administered under Christ. And as I've mentioned, there are other signs that are not necessarily sacraments. For instance, uh, many Reformed authors will speak of the uh, tree of life in the Garden of Eden uh, with the covenant of works made with Adam as being a sign of that covenant whereby Adam could look and see. It's a sensible sign. He could look and see uh, that there was eternal life promised to him. Uh, The rainbow in in the the case of Noah, another sign, not necessarily a sacrament, but another sign. With Moses, you have the Sabbath, and with David, you have a a throne. There are various signs, and not all of them are sacraments. Now, the third part that makes a sign and seal a sacrament, first, sacraments are signs and seals. Secondly, they are uh, related to a covenant of grace. Thirdly, the confession goes on to tell us that they are immediately instituted by God. Now, this is where we first get into sort of the polemical angle of the confession of faith, because they're saying it's a, a sign, a sacrament is immediately instituted by God, and the Roman Catholic Church is going to presume some authority to institute sacraments themselves. So they're saying that in Uh, contrast to the Roman Catholic Church. Robert Shaw says the express institution of God is essentially requisite to constitute a sacrament. No ordinances ought to be observed in the Christian church, but such have been appointed by Christ, her alone king. There is no other head of the church, God and Christ only. He only can have the authority to institute sacraments who has power to confer the blessings which are thereby represented and applied. No right, therefore, can deserve the name of sacrament unless it bears the stamp of a divine institution. Go back to my story a moment ago about getting the apostille stamped on my certificate of marriage in Korea to my wife. If I had just gone and found any old stamp with red ink and stamped it on there, I would not be married. You have to have the authority to institute a sign. And that authority comes, uh, especially highlights Robert Shaw's quote, from the power to confer the blessings in the covenant in the first place. We, we can't create, we can't institute new sacraments because we can't confer blessing. Only God can do that. Well, then we should ask, In the Bible, what sacraments do we see instituted immediately by God? And there are obviously two. I mentioned them before. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Key verses, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus is expressly and immediately as the God-man instituting a sacrament when he sends his disciples, he commissions them to baptize uh, the nations. Secondly, the Lord's Supper, 
this is being reported indirectly. There are words, I guess, we could have gone to the, the main institution in Matthew, but I have from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three the words of Paul, but he's referring uh, to the original institution. He says, for I received from the Lord, so he's not making it up himself. Paul didn't, none of the disciples said, you know, in the Old Testament, they had circumcision and Passover, and those were pretty cool. We like formal rites. It seems like it'd be nice if the New Testament Christian church had something similar. No. He says, For I receive from the Lord what, also, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And it goes on and describes the institution of the Lord's Supper. Paul didn't make it up, but he received from the Lord, and then he delivered it unto his disciples. Well, we, we make a grievous error when we introduce sacraments of our own making and teach others to observe them. We have no authority to do so. But to summarize, for a sacrament to be a sacrament, it must be first a, a sensible sign and a confirming seal. Secondly, it needs to belong to a covenant, specifically here a covenant of grace. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, it needs to actually be instituted by God himself immediately. All right, next part of that first paragraph brings us to why do we need sacraments? And the confession of faith tells us that we need sacraments to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. And I think the order in which they put these is significant. This isn't an unordered list. This is an ordered list. God uses the sacraments, firstly, to represent. That's the sort of corresponding word to signify Christ to you and to confirm, that is, to seal your interest in him. What do we mean by interest? It means your, 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 your share, your, your involvement, your concern in him. You, 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 there's a relationship there. And so you get to derive benefit because you have interest in him. The, this is the primary use. There are other uses, but the primary use of sacraments, the, the, the purpose, the ends for which the Lord himself has instituted them is to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. The proof text provided by the confession, uh, by the assembly, is Romans 4, verse 10 and 11. Uh, it asks, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so while the, while the language of sacramentum is originally a secular word, they are using it to describe things that are very clearly and explicitly in the Bible. Much in the same way we don't find the word trinity of trinitas in the Bible. And yet the ideas of the trinity are, are all over. The truths are all over the scripture. Similar, similarly, sacramentum is not found in the Bible. But this language of signing and sealing is uh, very clearly there. Well, secondly, God uses sacraments as badges to mark you as a member of the church. And this is something that most 
Christians, Roman Catholics, Protestants, uh, today even Baptists will acknowledge that this is, uh, this is what a sacrament, at least a part of what the sacrament is. But again, it's not the only thing a sacrament is. First and foremost, they are signs and seals of Christ uh, and his benefits to confirm our interest in him. But they, there is a real sense in which the sacraments do function as badges. What, what does that mean by badge? Well, in the same way a police officer has a badge. Uh, we know that he's a police officer. It's the same way if you travel overseas, you have a passport, and by that passport you are identified as being uh, an American citizen. Actually, I found out you can get a passport without being a citizen. You can be a, uh, a non-citizen national if you're in a protectorate or something like that. But uh, generally, you have a, a passport. It means you're a citizen. Well, the, the, the covenant sacraments function in a similar way. Uh, you, you go to the Old Testament, and you have the institution of the sign and seal, the sacrament of circumcision uh, given to the Jews. In Genesis 17, 7, and 11, uh, we read uh, how the, the, the male Israelites are to be circumcised. Well, the other people weren't, but they were. And non-Israelites are then called later the uncircumcised. And because they are the uncircumcised, they are excluded from certain activities, namely participation in the Passover, and as I preached on last Sunday, from marriage with other Jews. And so these covenant signs, these seals, these sacraments function as badges uh, to distinguish those, to, it says to put a visible difference between those that belong under the church and the rest of the world. Non-baptized persons are not admitted to the Lord's Supper, nor should they be married uh, to unbelievers. Sacraments mark us as members, and without them we cannot gain access to certain privileges. Uh, something like uh, the illustration would be, uh, if, you, if you don't have shoes, you don't get service, right? No shirt, no shoes, no service. You need to be wearing swimming trunks if you're going to get in the pool. I used to always get yelled at on basketball courts like this because I was wearing boots instead of tennis shoes and it would scuff up. There are certain marks that you need in order to participate fully in the covenant privileges. But again, I emphasize, because I think the ordering of this list is significant, covenant badges, that is a use and ends, one of the purpose by which God, or that which God has ordained these for use, but it's not the primary one. You can have something that has a primary use and, and use it, but it can have other uses too. That's okay. I, I, toothbrushes in the army, right? Why do we have toothbrushes? We have toothbrushes that brush our teeth. But they do also make pretty good tile scrubbing devices for getting into the, the mortar and the, the grout. Uh, but the primary use is not for brushing tiles and grout. It's for brushing your teeth. Third use. So first... They represent Christ and his benefits and confirm our interest in them. Secondly, they put a visible difference between the church and the world. Thirdly, they engage us as church members to serve God uh, through Christ. Again, an illustration from my time in the military. I hope those don't get too tedious and weary for you. But you, you, you start your life off in the military by making an oath of enlistment. And then you spend... Almost every month, it seems, at a re-enlistment ceremony for somebody else where they are re-engaging. They're already soldiers in the United States Army, but they're re-engaging in this oath, confirming that which they've already agreed to do. They're not becoming soldiers at that point. 
They're already soldiers, and they re-enlist. They're re-engaging to be uh, soldiers as well. Well, our BCO uh, chapter 58-6 describes something of what's going on here when it's talking about worship. It says, Since believers are to act personally in all their covenanting with the Lord, it is proper that a part of the time occupied in the distribution of the elements, uh, speaking of the Lord's Supper, should be sent, spent by all in silent communion, thanksgiving, intercession, and prayer. We, we tend to think primarily, and rightfully so, that the, the sacraments are what God is doing uh, to and for us, right? Uh, that, that God is showing us Christ and his benefits. And sometimes, less frequently, we think of them as being markers of the covenant community. But there is an element in which we are engaging, we are being engaged by the Lord. He's giving the sort of reenlistment oath Every time we observe a baptism, every time we uh, partake in the Lord's Supper, we are to be thinking in our personal covenanting with God. That he's made promises to us, yes and amen. But we have duties that we are responsible for fulfilling. Paul will apply this principle in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Being a part of the covenant community and receiving the sacraments means that there are things that you cannot do and there are things that you are obliged to do. He'll say in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the third use of the sacraments. I think it's something greatly neglected in our own day. We ought to be thinking about what God is promising to us, but also what we are obliged to him in terms of our duty as we partake the Lord's Supper, as we observe others being baptized. Now, second paragraph, what is in a sacrament? We've talked about in the last, I guess, 30 minutes or so, what is a sacrament? Now we're getting into the details. What's it, what, what are its parts? And the confession says there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the, re- the, between the sign and the thing signified. That, again, that's language coming back from Augustine. Sign and reality, right? Between the sign and the thing signifies. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. And so we have in a sacrament two parts. There is the sign, the bread, the wine, the water... And there is the thing signified, that is, at the most highest level, Christ and all his benefits, and we might think in more specific terms, uh, we wouldn't be wrong to do so. So those are the two parts, and the question is, and this is where the controversy with Rome really starts to explode, what is the relationship between those two parts? What is the relationship between sign and reality? What is the connection and so the sign is the, the sensible, the visible. It's water, bread, and wine. You, you, can, you, can, you can feel it. You can taste it. You can smell it. You can drink it, the wine, not the water. You can see and smell. You can sense. And then you have the signified, Christ and his benefits. But what is the connection? Well, the, the confession of faith, one of the frustrating things is it really doesn't spell out explicitly, precisely, in full detail what it means here. It simply affirms uh, one simple, important interpretive principle. Namely, that sacraments are often stand-ins. They stand in a place for the things signified. Uh, They function in a sort of shorthand. Uh, 
And they explain this by saying that the names and effects of one are attributed uh, to the other. And so in the army, we say we have boots on the ground. We didn't just drop a bunch of boots in the desert somewhere. Uh, The boots are shorthand for ground troops. Uh, And there are so many other examples. You know, uh, I, I got a new set of wheels. Did I get a, just a new set of wheels, like the actual wheel? Or did I get the wheel with the tire? No, probably I got a, a whole new car. And so we, we refer to the whole by the part. We refer in a similar way to the sign by the seal. Or by the, 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 we, the, the sign, uh, we, we refer to the, re, the reality by the sign, or vice versa. And so what does it mean here by attributing the names and effects of one to the other? Let me just give you an example. Matthew 26, 26, and 27. Now they were eating. Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he goes on, he took the cup, and he says, This is my blood of the covenant. Now, one of the huge differences between the Reformed view of this, what's going on, and the Roman Catholic view of what's going on here is has to do with this principle of interpretation. Is Jesus identifying in a, a, substantive, a substantive way that his cup that he's holding is his blood? Is the, the bread really and physically and carnally his body? Or, or is he using this sort of language of attributing one name or effect to the other things signified. I think we, we have other examples of this not related to sacraments that I, I hope clears it up. When, when Jesus says, I am the way, does he mean that he's a brick or dirt road? He says, I, I am the gate. Obviously, he's not saying he swings this way and that way. Well, we understand language doesn't work like that, and that's what this is saying here is that there is a relation, there's a very close relation between the sign and the reality. And it's so close that the names and attributes, the effects, can all be attributed one to the other without identifying one with the other in some absolute way. That brings us to how sacraments then work. The Confession of Faith says, the grace which is exhibited and or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them, neither doth the efficacy of the sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it. This is really just going for the throat of the Roman Catholic Church uh, because they would say that the grace which is exhibited in the sacraments is conferred by the power in them. That is, you know, the words you've probably heard, uh, ex opere operato, in the working it is worked. There is a, an inseparable, inherent efficacy still by, the, by virtue of God's involvement. They're not denying that God's involved in the sacraments. But what they're really saying is it doesn't really matter if you understand or believe what's going on. Just as long as you've got the priest and he says the right words and he means them and you receive that, then you're good. You've received objectively that grace. And that's why it goes on and says, Neither does the efficacy of the sacrament depend on the piety or intention of him that doth administer it. You have this problem, right? Rome teaches that the intention does matter. That the, the, the priest, he, he, can, he can basically just secretly think, Well, I don't really, 
I don't really think this guy needs it. Uh, he does, he, I'm not going to give it to him. I'm just, there was a huge scandal. You may have probably saw it in the news, I don't know, two or three years ago. One of the priests had been saying the wrong words of institution for like a long time. And they were all wondering, it was referring to baptism. Well, am I really baptized? Thank God that the sacraments do not depend on the piety or intention of the one that administers it. So this is leveled against Rome. It would be a big problem if it were true. Thankfully, it's not. So that's how sacraments don't work. They don't work because of the piety or intention of the minister. They don't work in themselves. They work because God is working in them by his Holy Spirit, regardless of our intention, regardless of our piety. We receive them by faith. Second part, how do sacraments work? If that's how they don't work, how do they work? Well, he goes on to say, but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains together with a precept offering the use thereof, a promise of benefit to the worthy receivers. And so how does the sacrament work? Very simply, God instituted it, God instituted it, and he works by it because he made it. And he does so by his Holy Spirit and by his word. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. How? By the Spirit. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. So what we really need in the sacraments is the operation of God and to receive those by faith. 1 Peter 3.21 similarly says, Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right. Simply, what sacraments has Christ instituted as we wrap up here in a moment? He's ordained baptism, and the Lord's Supper. We've heard from the Scripture already the express words of Jesus commanding the use of baptism and the words of Paul referring to what he had received from Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. And so we have express biblical warrant from the Scriptures for those two sacraments. And the problem is that Rome had seven. And what are those? Well, they had the first two that... They had, in addition to the Lord's Supper and baptism, uh, we would recognize as being true things that we ought to do, but are not sacraments. Let's see if you can figure out why. Uh, the first is ordination, that is, ordination to the ministry. The second is marriage. But we know that the Bible speaks of the laying on of hands, and we know that there are ordained officers, there are apostles and teachers and uh, preachers and these sorts of things. Uh, but are those sacraments? Do, do, do they fit the biblical definition? Sure, they're, they're instituted, they're thing, they're rights instituted by God, but do they point in sensible ways to the covenant of grace? Do they seal the covenant of grace? No. Well, marriage, at least, we know is a creational ordinance. People who aren't Christian get married. And we know there's some picture that the Bible gives us that Marriage is a picture for Christ and his love for the church. Uh, but it is broader in its design than to be a sacrament of the covenant of grace. It's for all men. 
The other three that Rome institutes, confirmation, penance, extreme unction. I don't think we have time to get into all the details of these things. You can do a quick Google for seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. You can read your heart out. Uh, I love what the Reformation largely said about these. They have absolutely no warrant in Scripture. They're just not even there. They're not there. All right, what sacraments has Christ instituted? And it goes on, neither on which they may be instituted, dispensed by any, but by a minister of the word, lawfully ordained. Uh, We just read in last uh, Sunday the, the fifth chapter of Hebrews. And we hear about Christ, and he's on the throne of grace, and he's our high priest. And it makes a point in the qualifications for a high priest. Uh, and it matters. It says that he did not assume this office for himself. No one takes this honor for himself, it says, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so ordination is not something we just take up and do. No, but we are ordained, and the, the ministry, the sacraments are given especially to the apostles and then subsequently to the the church, especially the officers of the church. The Roman Catholics would say, in general, that's true. In general, under normal circumstances, it's the priests who are to administer the sacraments. But they had this exception for exceptional circumstances where any lay member could do the sacraments. And the Reformed uh, Reformed are going to come back and they're going to say, no, there, there are no exceptions here. The Bible doesn't give us an exception. Uh, what about the, 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 the person all the way over in the far-off country and somebody shares the gospel with them and they need to be baptized, right? Well, we need to plant a church. We need to send pastors and preachers. We need to give them the authority of an evangelist and send people so that they can baptize and administer the Lord's Supper and they can give the sacraments to the people. So I think, well, don't they need those things? I think this is something helpful as we consider this last little section here. What are the sacraments? They are visible representations uh, of God's Word. There is no special, different kind of grace that you get in the sacraments. Really, their efficacy is tied directly to the working of the Spirit and by the Word, like we saw earlier. And so they're not lacking anything by not having those things. They, they are something we should do in obedience, uh, but they are not lost without them. And so we should do these things in the right order. Let's send preachers and church planters so that people can be baptized properly. I think we'll save this last paragraph at 750. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap this up next time. It's going to be in the question of what is the relationship between sacraments. And just briefly, it's saying that they're not substantially different. Circumcision corresponds with baptism. The Lord's Supper corresponds with the Passover. All of them are sacraments of a covenant of grace, albeit under different administrations, and all of them point to Christ. They're not pointing to anything different. They're pointing to Christ and his benefits. In the Old Testament, we look forward to Christ through the sacraments. In the New Testament, we look back to Christ with the sacraments, but we're also looking forward and we'll enjoy uh, the sacrament with him again uh, in heaven uh, when we drink anew. Well, let's review what are sacraments. They're signs and seals instituted immediately by God. Why do we need them? There's a whole list of purposes. Primarily, they represent Christ and his benefits and confirm them to us. What's in a sacrament? Sign, reality. How do sacraments not work? 
not in themselves, not by virtue of the priest. How do they work? By the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God. What sacraments are there actually instituted by Christ? The Lord's Supper, baptism. Who may administer them? Lawfully ordained ministers and no one else. And how do they relate to the Old Testament? They're substantially the same. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these signs of your covenant of grace, these seals which confirm to us your promises. Lord, we thank you that you sustain us by these means of grace. Help us to use them rightly. Help us to understand them rightly. As we consider your promises to us, help us to consider our duty towards you. And Lord, would you grow us in grace as we participate in Christ through them. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let me encourage you in the weeks to come. We have a number of interesting subjects coming up. The baptism, the Lord's Supper, church censures, and many other things. Next week, everyone's favorite in a Presbyterian church. Why? Baptism.